Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Seven Deadly Sinners early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, When you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. another episode of Seven Deadly Sinners. I hope you guys had a very happy Thanksgiving, and I want you to know that I am so thankful for all of you. Seriously, this show would be nothing without you, and I I just really appreciate you. And I appreciate you because uh, you accept me for being embarrassing, even though you weren't going to come to my presidential luncheon Friendsgiving, but I woke up this morning extremely embarrassed that... So we're still building our house in Colorado, and I was really into this other podcast I was listening to last night, and so I stayed up till like 1 a.m. doing a tablescape for my garage Friendsgiving that we're having a few days after Thanksgiving. Um, So we're staying in Greg's dad's house, and the garage is the biggest space there, and I made the most ridiculous... I mean, I pretty much put out place cards for people on a fold-out table, but then I... Greg, can you just describe it? I just woke up in a panic this morning, and I was like, I have to... I need to rip that apart. That is so embarrassing. Get some paper plates and lay them down. Okay, let me paint the scene here. We're in a sports bar meets man cave meets hardware store. My dad, like Rachel said, the biggest room in, in this house he built is the garage. It's the biggest part of the house. And it's got neon 
Miller light signs and uh, old car posters and Homer Simpson on the wall, along with every possible family photo we've ever taken in a frame in no particular order, just a wild array on the walls. And then on the other side, it's basically a hardware store. Every nut, bolt, screw in every shape you could you could imagine and our friends who are coming to this friendsgiving our our neighbors are all ranchers so you know they're going to be wearing carharts and work boots but my embarrassing ass who's just craving like luxury or something i don't know i wanted to make it special for them i've been planning the meal for like a week and a half i am dry aging a prime rib in the fridge i thought it needed to be special so I took a lot of the stuff that we used for our wedding, like gold chargers to put under the white plates. And then um, I carefully wrapped every single uh, napkin roll up and uh, gold forks. And like, these guys don't want to use a salad fork and another fork, and nor do I even know which ones to use. But I carefully wrapped them in our embroidered um, linen napkins and uh, placed candles and a white tablecloth over the fold-out table. Yeah, these guys are going to be afraid to wipe their mouths on on that. It, it... <laughs> I think what sealed the deal was that I, I then put a silk ribbon around each uh, napkin roll-up. I thought it was the candles. It's all it's all embarrassing. I Like, right when I was done, I was like, oh, I think this is weird. And then I woke up at 6 a.m. in a panic, like, uh, I got to fix that before they come over. And then Greg and I laughed about it pretty yeah, much. She was wide awake. It was actually 5 a.m. And in, in sheer embarrassment, she's like, I don't go in the garage. I'm like, why not? And so I had to go you know, get up and, and go look in the garage. And I walked out to what looked like a, a presidential luncheon. I, I thought maybe we were going to have former President Barack Obama on the guest list. I, w- I was like, I th- thought it was just going to be... Nate, Ray, and Fernando, Rachel, but... Uh, I even found one of those, like, little sta- like gold stands that you put, like, a like a seating card on. or And then I was kind of like, oh, I'll just place that in front of the food so they know that that's stuffing. I really, I just, I went insane. So, yeah, I think we'll post a photo of it on the Instagram just in case you want to see the embarrassment before I tear it down. Don't say dinner party around this girl, sure. Just <laughs> start planning it... The moment she hears it, she did try trial like three different types of gravy. Actually, more than that. <laughs> but let's stop with my embarrassing personality and get into this wild story. The Laurier Church in the center of Rio de Janeiro. We're here to remember a massacre 21 years ago when 40 to 60 children were here seeking shelter. They were sleeping outside the church, they would wash in the fountain, they would eat on the grass. And late one night, some cars rolled up, and men got out and opened fire on these children. Eight young people were killed, killed where they sought shelter. Because this is just the first of the accused, there are a number of other trials have to take place specifically in relation to Candelaria. So, um, you know, one will have to wait and monitor the ongoing trials in relation to this case. A couple of weeks after adopting Rayanne, Fleur-de-Lise opened her door to find 37 homeless children asking for help, and her enormous family was born overnight. This episode has it all. A politician, evangelical preacher, gospel singer, murder plots, husband and wife, mother to 
dozens, yes, you heard me right, mother to dozens of children. Then there's conspiracy, a reported swingers club, an arrest, or several. The list goes on and on in this twisted tale of corrupt thoughts and actions under the guise of saintly acts. Which could be considered one of the more prideful things a sinner could do. I mean, how much pride do you have to have to make yourself a public Mother Teresa of sorts, only to use it as a guise for popularity, fame, and control? This episode takes us back to an evangelical Brazil. Is this ringing any John of God bells for you guys? If you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest you go back and do it, because there's a lot of similarities between John of God and our case today. But this one starts under much different circumstances. So are we ready to dive in? Buckle up, gang. This one is a twisty, turny ride. Florida Lee Dos Santos de Souza was born February 5th, 1961. And listen, I'm going to get a lot of pronunciation wrong. I am currently Googling a lot of pronunciations. I think I got that one right, but just bear with me here. So Florida Lee was born February 5th, 1961, and grew up in Hoca Racine, Brazil, which was one of the poorest and most dangerous neighborhoods in Brazil. Basically, a tin roof slum of 60,000 people on the industrial northern end of Rio. It was controlled by a drug gang that was very suspicious of outsiders. She was raised in the Pentecostal Assembly of God Church. Her parents were members of what would become Brazil's largest evangelical church. Her artist father would paint angels on church ceilings. She was also raised in a home that doubled as a daycare, often watching over 100 kids at a time with her mother. So the way her life turned out isn't surprising. It's a kind gesture to take in the neighborhood kids, but I have to imagine the stress of that situation was at a chaotic level. Still wonderful of them to do so, but perhaps this experience, coupled with what happens next, would color much of Florida Lee's life. Like many evangelical kids under the influence of their parents, she felt called by God at an early age, leading prayer sessions in her youth. But then, tragedy struck. Florida Lee's brother and father were killed in a traffic accident when she was just in her early teens. Could this perhaps have caused her to be so empathetic towards orphans later in her life? To cope with her grief, she began working in a bakery and throwing herself into church alongside her mother. It was becoming more and more apparent that she was a skilled vocalist and guitar player as she would lead songs for prayer sessions in their family's tiny rundown shack. By the late 1980s, the neighborhood continued plunging further and further into crime and drug-related violence, with one of the highest murder rates in the world. It was during this time, dodging a deluge of cocaine and automatic weapons exchanges, that Florida Lise and her mother opened their own storefront church, and the young woman began leading young male disciples. One of them, a teenager, who would become her future husband, 
Yeah, she's fun. This is this is getting uncomfy. Just buckle up. This is when she felt called to preach in prisons and work with prostitutes, all while proselytizing at a local hangout for the homeless and hardened criminals. Every Friday at midnight, she and a group of ragamuffin disciples would set forth from the family church to confront young gang members and attempt to convert them. She told the Guardian, quote, Nobody did the kind of work we did. My mom thought I was mad. My family thought I was mad. Everyone thought I was mad. But my desire to do something has always spoken louder than common sense. Florida Lee can't live if she's not doing something for someone else. And why is she talking about herself in the third person? Florida Lee can't live if she's not doing something. That is... That's a sign of some sort of narcissism. Not only would she share the gospel with them, she also began offering her cramped home as a sort of shelter. And her following grew. And her family grew slowly and steadily after converting sinners in drug dens into saints marching on. One such converted saint was Wagner Pimenta, one of Florida Lee's first foster sons who joined the family in his early teens to help with the mission of converting the most vile offenders into Christianity. We were in awe of her, he said. We felt honored to be a part of that group. She would later marry and have three children of her own, Simone, Flavio, and Andrino, with a husband who would eventually leave her. Wagner recalled of this time that he was living with the three biological children and at least five other local teens. The first to arrive, according to Florida Lee's 2011 autobiography, was Carlos, a 19-year-old cocaine addict and drug trafficker whose cousin was one of the neighborhood's most notorious killers. He ran away in hopes of escaping a life of drugs. Several other young men and women would come and go as well, facing similar life stories or serious problems at home, and some never left. Additionally, some of the young men dated Florida Lisa's daughter Simone, including, according to Wagner, one Anderson de Carmo, who moved into the home when he was just 14 or 15. And this is an important point to remember. Florida Lee had another movie-worthy scene take place during her nightly Salvation Alley runs. She met a mother that was going to abandon her child in a vacant lot, and Florida Lee offered to take that baby home, and this became the first child Florida Lee adopted. The mother then kept track of Florida Lee and was an integral part of what happens next. Then one of the worst, unjustifiable, and tragic massacres in history occurred. Facilitated by allegedly off-duty military police officers, who ambushed a group of street children who often slept outside an 18th century church for comfort. More than 70 of them slept that night, coming from poor, drug-addicted, violent, trafficked, you-name-it backgrounds, and they found a safe space in the church and with each other. But the police came to essentially get rid of these kids. And on July 22, 1993, 
when they tried to take them from the only place these kids felt safe. The kids began throwing rocks at their cars. But the police allegedly, again off-duty, retaliated in such an extreme way that doesn't even come close to the few kids throwing some pebbles at their cars, did this. The next night, on July 23rd, the police showed up in an unmarked car at 2 a.m. Likely when these kids were fast asleep, the men pulled up with their lights off and opened fire on these kids. It's just so heartbreaking and so upsetting that it's never gotten more attention. I've never heard that story. And I found articles about it, sure, but not to the degree that you'd find something on, say, John Bonet Ramsey. Granted, I know it's in a different country, so it wouldn't come up in a ton of American news searches, but I went on Scribd, newspapers.com, and even searched for old articles from 1993 to 1995. And specifically when it happened, there just wasn't much reported. And it wasn't just an isolated incident. According to an article on the U.S. Department of Justice, written by M.M. Silva, they state this, The July 1993 killing of a group of children outside the Candelaria Church in Rio de Janeiro, allegedly by off-duty military police officers, was not an isolated event. According to the Federal Police of Brazil, almost 6,000 children were killed between 1988 and 1991. Most of these youngsters came from rural areas and urban shantytowns. They do not work or study, and they find the streets of Rio de Janeiro and San Paulo a sense of belonging, joining others of their kind in theft, drugs, prostitution, and other illegal activities. When they are old enough to interact with organized crime groups, drug traffickers, and the police, the street kids face another danger extermination groups. These groups are composed of police officers, ex-officers, and vigilantes who stalk and prey upon these street kids. This incident still haunts Brazil, and the city is still feeling the effects. According to the Wall Street Journal, the latest to die was Fat Beth. That was the street nickname of Elizabeth de Oliveira, 23 years old, who was gunned down in September, apparently by drug traffickers, as her children watched. Before that, in June, her ex-boyfriend, Sandro, was strangled by police after he hijacked a bus and took hostages. Previously, the youths known as Hulk and Shorty died while committing robberies, and the one known as Dirty died in a fire in a reformatory. All of the dead had one thing in common. They were among the 60-odd survivors of the infamous 1993 police massacre in which eight street children died outside of Our Lady of Candelaria Church in downtown Rio. And this is when the mother, who was about to abandon her child before Florida allegedly stepped in, comes back into play. And now I'm going to start calling Florida Lee's Floor, because it's hard to say. So Floor said to the New Yorker, 
that the woman that was about to abandon her baby then tracked her down after the massacre of the street children. And this woman had somehow gathered the survivors and brought them to Floor, to which Floor reported to the New Yorker, quote, In a blink of an eye, I had 37 children. Fourteen of them were babies. I was 33 at the time. They go on to say, since Anderson's murder, which you're going to hear about, many details of Flora's story have been challenged by critics who argue that her rescues were less dramatic than she made them sound. There was indeed a massacre around that time. The police killed a group of children who slept outside, but no one could be sure whether Flora's adoptees were survivors of the episode or just kids from the neighborhood. Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And soon, her small two-bedroom home was filled with more than 50 babies, children and teens, sleeping on every square inch of the floor in crowded squalor. Several babies sharing one cot, people sleeping on and under tables, sharing germs and even sharing a scabies outbreak. Word began spreading about this woman in her 30s housing nearly 50 children in her tiny shack. This only served as fodder to catapult her love for children and altruism and musical talents, to name a few things, into the public eye. Reporters followed, including a reporter named Priscilla from Brazil's TV Globo, who was one of the first to visit the home in July of 1994. Her report wasn't scathing. It didn't give viewers a sense that anything bad was going on. But it was obvious the space was cramped and overpopulated, which led to child welfare checks that forced the family to flee their home and go into hiding in temporary homes run by drug gangs. And then, in the middle of all this chaos, Florida Lise married one of her own adopted sons, the teenager we mentioned earlier, Anderson DeCarmo in 1998. And that's just a little too Woody Allen for me, especially considering that guy dated, or that child, I'm sorry, dated Florida Lisa's daughter. Many sources, including Wagner, claim Anderson was adopted into the family when he was 14 or 15, and he and Florida Lisa were married when he was 21. She would have been 37, if my math is correct. 
Flordelis insists in some interviews that they had met at her church and did not start a relationship until he was 18. But she did tell the New Yorker that she took him in when he was about 16, when he left his family to join hers. It's not all quite adding up, but really nothing does with her. Regardless, the media is beginning to turn on her, and newspaper headlines are screaming that she's an abductor of children. She arranged a meeting with an official from the United Nations who had previously lobbied to have police hunt her down. But as she told the New Yorker, officials were so moved by her story that they decided to take her side. With help from the children's advocate, she legalized her custody, creating the Florida Lee Family Home Association as an umbrella group. This new media attention brought some favorable publicity to the growing family, and they began to parade around a circuit of several of Brazil's popular daytime TV talk shows, helping her and her brood gain attention and donations, like furniture, a home, free groceries every week, and a washing machine, to set them on their way to their next venture. Guess what that was? A church. In 1999, the newlyweds co-founded a church together that translates to the Community of the Evangelical Ministry of Florida Lee. It began in the garage of one of their temporary homes. Neighbors and friends and businessmen began attending prayer sessions after that. And those prayer sessions turned into weekly singing performances by her. Anderson then became Pastor Anderson of the growing congregation that would see parishioners flock by the thousands to hear the singer belt out worship songs. The largest of the six church venues was a converted bus depot that was regularly attended by 5,000 faith seekers. That sounds absolutely massive. It was called City of Fire and even housed a gift shop to buy trinkets like coffee mugs with inspiring messages. Florida Lee was quickly becoming one of the most famous, charismatic, evangelical figures in Brazil. A successful church wasn't enough to keep this mom of dozens busy, though. At one point, she alleges she had 55 adopted and biological children and was eventually accused of adopting the children without following proper legal procedures. But she wanted more. Why not shoot for a political career at this point? What the hell? Why not? So in 2004, Florida Lee ran unsuccessfully for Sao Gonzalo City Council. And so when that didn't work, why not try to make it even more known to the masses that you're a do-gooder, a servant of God, a philanthropist that adopts scores of children to save them from a life of deprivation and get them off the streets. Let's push that agenda a little more. And evidently, it worked. Her star was rising, and media were continuing their positive, uplifting coverage of the evangelist. A film based on her supposed saintly life was released in 2009, with some of Brazil's top soap actors in starring roles. The film even premiered at Rio's International Film Festival, where the family received the literal red carpet treatment. 
though the film was a flop. But the newly coined celebrity was then approached by one of the Rio de Janeiro's top gospel labels, MK Music, to release her first official album in 2010. Though she had previously released numerous independent records before that, but this was the label. And she ended up releasing six albums, as well as a video album. And rising star she was. Just take a listen. Ele mora acima de tudo, além do universo, mas pra te ajudar, sempre está bem perto, os montes e vales atravessa por ti. But again, this is not enough. She wanted more. Why not shoot your shot in the political arena again? So in 2016, she unsuccessfully ran for the mayorship of Sao Gonzalo. But ever the optimist, she finally succeeded in a run for a seat in Brazil's House of Congress. She claimed to have a dream sent by God and told the New Yorker, a strong wind blew from my back and those papers flew around. And then I saw a picture with four numbers. In the elections for Brazil's Congress, each candidate is identified by four numbers. I woke up my husband and I said to him, I'm going to be a politician. And she beat her opponent in the 2018 election by receiving almost 200,000 votes. From 2019 until 2021, she was a member of the Chamber of Deputies in Rio de Janeiro. She was embraced and adored by those who were considered ultra-conservative and told The Guardian, I was over the moon, happy, happy, happy. I'd achieved things I could never have dreamed of. God went so far beyond my dreams, so very far. She also vowed to fight for her family, for life, and for women as she was sworn into office. But it wasn't all butterflies and rainbows. Because what we have learned in this podcast about pride, it comes before the fall. And it was a pretty hard and tragic fall, early in the morning of June 16th, 2019, when her 42-year-old husband was shot dead in the garage of the gated family home. It was initially seen as a politically motivated attack. Two of her sons drove Anderson to the hospital, but it was too late. At the time, Anderson was managing her political career and caring for the family home, which was actually a sprawling compound of four separate structures. 22 of the family's children still lived at home, ranging in age from 3 to 40. And the couple at this point had been together for 26 years. She took to Instagram shortly after his death in a post to her million followers, posting a photo of she and her late husband during a trip to Israel. The caption, I still feel lost. Part of me died with you. I feel a mixture of pain and disgust. What they did to you was so cruel. She said that before she wrote signing off, I love you, my baby. The grieving widow even gave a sermon at her husband's wake to the gathering of 2,500 mourners, and spoke of a prophetic dream one of her children had in which they saw Jesus cutting a rose with a sickle. When he told me about it, I told him, 
God is going to take someone from our house. Now, there he is, our shepherd, which is what she said at the funeral service. It was a rather convenient prophecy. And wouldn't you know it? Several hours after the service, two of her sons were arrested. It was made publicly known that Anderson was killed with a gun purchased by one of his own adopted children, 18-year-old Lucas, who pleaded guilty and accused another one of his brothers, 38-year-old Flavio, of committing the actual murder. In the days after the murder, details and accusations against the singer began to flood the Brazilian media, including claims the pastor had been found semi-nude and shot more than 30 times in the groin and the upper thighs. There were also unfounded claims that the married couple spent their last night together in a swingers club after additional reports of her being spotted at a West Rio club multiple times under the influence. She, of course, claimed that that wasn't true and that her husband had been killed by burglars, not their adopted children. But it wasn't enough. Five of the six churches closed. She was suspended by her political party. Actors who had appeared in the film about her life spoke of their regret in sharing her story. And still the investigation continued, and dozens of people, including the couple's children and grandchildren, were questioned by authorities. Two of the children claimed Anderson had received death threats and even an execution order before his untimely death. Also, according to Aldea News, three days before the murder, they saw their mother write in a notebook, quote, we will break Anderson's cell phone and throw it off the Rio Bridge. The phone never turned up, though. But this is where things get really wild. Not only did the tides turn, and she was shortly after accused of masterminding the barbaric murder of her preacher husband, it was also revealed that she had attempted to have him killed at least six other times through poisoning his food and drinks with arsenic or in staged robberies. One of the congresswoman's daughters allegedly had even searched the internet for cyanide in food, but claimed it was merely out of curiosity to help a friend whose dog was sick. Another of the couple's daughters, Marcy, told that her father suspected the death threats were coming from someone in the family, and he sat his children down to question them one by one. The girl had her own issues with her father, telling the police that he didn't give her money she asked for or let her progress in the family's church. She also alleged that he abused one of her sisters, Simone. And I find that allegation very interesting, considering Wagner had said that they had been in a relationship and Marcy admitted to trying to poison her father's food. But let's also remember that he was 14 to 15 when he entered the family and likely had began a sexual relationship or some type of relationship with Florida Lee probably before he was 18, though she claims he was 18. It's just weird. And these attempts began as far back as May 2018, when the contaminated food caused him to be hospitalized several times. 
During the course of the investigation, a local congressman said that the relationship between Florida Lee and her ex-husband had been strained for a long time. It had gone badly. And then it took this tragic end. He also told members of Congress while on the House floor that Florida Lee had tried to obstruct the investigations with these of robbery, confusing the police, directing the police in different paths from those in which, in fact, they would find the truth of the facts. The lead investigator told Brazilian TV network Globo that Florida Lee, in addition to devising this entire plan, financed the purchase of the weapon, convinced people to carry out the crime, warned of the victim's arrival at the scene, and tried to hide evidence. He said there is no doubt that she was the intellectual author, the great head of this crime. He called her the ringleader of the entire operation, adding that she was cold. She's calculating. She's sly. And I consider Florida Lee to be a psychopath. He then stated that he thinks that she set up an entire family criminal organization with the sole purpose of killing her husband. The motive? Constant fights over family finances and her favoring several children more than others. I mean, Anderson also was reportedly in charge of all church revenue, so it was probably all about control. All about pride. To try to shorten up the nuts and bolts of a potentially very long story, where the politics of it are all concerned, in August of 2020, prosecutors announced charges against Florida Lee and arrested five adopted children, as well as two biological children, and one granddaughter. Allegations were that they had orchestrated Anderson's murder. But police couldn't arrest the politician because she held parliamentary immunity. Therefore, the politician could not be hauled off to prison. But her movements were monitored by an ankle monitor that she concealed with floor-length dresses when attending court. She maintained her innocence as the trial started in late November of 2020. Ironically, the trial's courtroom view was of Rio's famous Christ the Redeemer statue. The political immunity was finally stripped away in August of 2021, when she was expelled from Congress for breach of parliamentary decorum and, as a result, could be tried and imprisoned for her husband's death. A total of 437 of the 513 members of the lower house of Congress voted to strip her of the immunity. She defended herself after the vote, telling constituents, if I leave here today, I'll leave with my head held high because I know I'm innocent and everyone will know I'm innocent. My innocence will be proven. I'll keep fighting to guarantee my freedom, the freedom of my children and my family, which is also being wronged with everything that is happening. My family is suffering. My family is being judged. And shortly before her actual arrest, the politician posted a video on social media telling fans, the day nobody wished for has arrived. I'm being arrested for something I did not do. Please pray for me. She was officially arrested several days 
later on August 12, 2021, by the civil police of Rio de Janeiro. While being escorted to a waiting police car, she shouted, Faith in God! She was sentenced just a few weeks ago for 50 years for the murder of her husband. The court said that the length of the sentence reflected the hatred, cold-bloodedness, and disrespect for human life that she had demonstrated by having her husband shot dead at the home the two shared with the dozens of street children they had adopted. Oh, that was a lot, guys. Well, this is all for today. And thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the holiday season. I love you. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star rating and positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'll see you next week. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Seven Deadly Sinners early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondry Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.